0: Cliffcentral.com. Well, it's a very good morning to you. Welcome to, um, Health Hour with me, Dr. Cindy Siwefansale. You can tweet me at doccindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I. And you can also tweet us at cliffcentral.com. And we have a very special guest in studio. Um, his name is Professor Eli Lewis. And he's speaking about diabetes, type 1 diabetes. He's done a lot of research around that. And he's a very interesting person. I mean, you just have to Google him and, and read up all about him. But thank you so
1: much, Eli, for being here. It's my pleasure.
0: And yes. how are you finding, um, our South African weather?
1: It's fantastic, so cool. actually, if you consider that I just came from Israel. The way at the top of the tip of Africa, I just traveled the whole continent. And we have a very similar weather.
0: Oh, so it's, it's very it's, familiar. Oh, So it's quite hot there as well.
1: It is, yeah.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for being here. And um, just before we go into um, the topic, um, you know, your, your, your field of research... I'm always curious to know how people ended up doing medicine. I mean, for me, I always say that for me, it was a calling. I, From the time I was four years old, I knew that I wanted to be a medical doctor. What about you? How did you end up doing medicine?
1: Oh, that's uh, that, that's a good question, I guess. <laughs> and some people actually go to medicine and only think about that later. But I guess it goes like this. The first thing I have to clarify is that I went into medical school, went into medical studies, and then I got drawn into medical research. But, yeah, the beginning was I just had to be a doctor. I just had to. It was I, in
0: your heart.
1: I, I always wanted to fix the condition which makes somebody feel bad mm. in any way. And actually, the first year, I didn't get accepted to medical school. So what did you do? You studied bio, uh, like biology. Mm-hmm. And during that year, I studied so many things in biology that helped me now in research. And I also self-studied the first year of medicine. Then I get accepted. And then I already know the first year. So it's it's. You know, when you get carried away and when you like it and you love it, you just fly through it. And it was fantastic. And then somebody told me, during the studies, you can take one year off for research. Okay. And I said, okay, that sounds interesting. I don't think I want to be a researcher, really. And within a few weeks, I got so um, in love with research, so drawn into it, thinking about it as the behind the curtains of medicine, behind... Uh, the discoveries. Every step you take hasn't been trodden on before.
0: Exactly. And it's
1: very exciting and fulfilling. Even the the difficulties, they they they're balanced with success. And since then, it's been, oh my god, uh, <laughs> almost twenty years now since since that first year That's of amazing. medical school. So That's now, amazing.
0: and I must tell you, um, Ellie, I mean, when it comes to research, it's it's some people like it and some people don't. Right. I absolutely can't stand it. I mean, as I mentioned to you earlier on. I have three papers that are just sitting around. <laughs> where, you know, I wish I could finish them. I wish I could find it in my heart to continue that research. And I hope that one day, you know, I can do it. But what, we, what, what do you find fascinating about it?
1: Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to describe exactly, um, particularly writing papers and research. I know what you're saying. Uh, even if you like research, I mean, what are you going to do now? Sit on the table and write it? It goes with this, and I discovered that uh, seeping into many areas. If you like what you do and you want to say it mm. and you want to share what you're doing, you'll be a good lecturer, a good teacher, a good writer, a good anything that has to do with that. So when I write a paper in, in medical research, I, f- I just feel like I'm explaining it to somebody else, which happens to be the entire scientific community. Mm. So we need your papers. We need to know what you did. <laughs>
0: no, that's true. No, I'll that's de- so exciting. <laughs> I'll definitely work on that's it. That's
1: the only thing you should consider. No, that's other true. Other people knowing it.
0: Yeah, no, that's true And I mean, especially because I work, I specifically work in the fields of HIV, and there's so many things that, that you know that have, have happened in this country, you know, over the past right. ten or so years with regards to HIV. But honing in specifically now on 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 diabetes and especially type one diabetes. I mean, I know that there's been t- Tons of research done on type 2 diabetes. I mean, you know, I, anyone can find a paper on type 2 diabetes. Yeah. But why the specific interest in type 1 diabetes? Where did that um, um, come from?
1: It actually started uh, to do with everything but type 1 diabetes. Okay. The, and, and it goes with the, my notion of uh, the way that you live, which is you have to do what you like and say yes to opportunities. Mm. It started with immunology. That was my first thing in research, just immunology. And in immunology, one of the aspects you want to see covered is transplants. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was maybe the year 2000, just before, type 1 diabetic individuals that were sick suddenly had this option that was very, um, very promising at that time mm-hmm. of transplanting the healthy pieces of the pancreas to replace the dead cells. That stopped working.
0: Mm. And maybe before we even carry on, Eli, yeah. I think it's important for us to, 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 for you to define for us, what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? I think then from there, Great. people understand how important and groundbreaking your research has, has, has been.
1: That's, I'm glad that you asked that yeah. because people are yeah. afraid to ask it. It's such a simple distinction. The first thing you need to know is diabetes, regardless of which one is, the high levels of sugar in the blood. Mm. That's it. They will walk around with a lot of glucose in the blood. And that's a bad condition to have over time. Glucose in the blood sticks to things, and it starts changing the way that your body works to the worse. It has the side effects, the downsides that are uh, on the long term. Then you have the distinction. Either you can make insulin or you can't. The ones who can make insulin, these are the adult um, type 2 diabetes patients, they can make insulin, but the body refuses to acknowledge that it is insulin. And the ones who are um, type 1 diabetics, they fail to make insulin Mm -hmm. because for some reason, which we're still trying to uncover, the body decided to send the immune system to attack their pancreatic cells that make insulin.
0: Okay. So
1: in both cases, insulin's job is compromised. Either Mm -hmm. it's not there to show up for the job, or it's doing its job, but nobody's listening. For both cases, um, you know what insulin is in general, which is giving it to people who don't have it. Mm. It really only solves type 1 diabetes. The fact that they cannot make it, then to inject insulin. Type 2 has its own clinical um, picture. Usually type 2 creeps up very slowly. When people are diagnosed, you can hear this all the time, Somebody, um adult, becomes diagnosed with type 2 diabetes not because he complained about high sugar. Mm. You cannot sense it. It is probably a random event. Something in your job had you do a checkup or like this uh, obligatory checkup or health thing. Yeah,
0: like a, a wellness day, yeah. for example. Or
1: you just you show up somewhere and they had to take your sugar. Yeah. And it's high. Under the surface, it turns out that that level was actually creeping up very long for mm, and years. We,
0: and no and always, because we don't check ourselves often. Exactly.
1: Now. I mean, it's such a simple test. You just wake up in the morning before you eat, you just check, check your glucose. It shouldn't be high. I mean, that's the point where you're fasting overnight. But in general, it's a, it's a disease that creeps up, and our mind isn't set to sense a lot of glucose. It's completely set to sense low levels. You can imagine what happens when glucose drops a bit. You'll do anything. All the alarm systems. Yeah. I imagine it like a dashboard. All the buttons are up. When you're hungry, you will stop at McDonald's. You will feel bad. You'll see blurry. You'll become nervous. You'll sweat. You'll have tingling. All that is your central nervous system telling you that the most most spoiled organ in the body, the brain, needs needs glucose. Mm -hmm. But high levels you're never intended to actually detect because the, the brain is happy. The brain is happy with more glucose. And so your body just goes with it. We never suffered from that in evolution. Back in the day, if you remember, mm. we were smaller creatures. But the way we live now, the way we um, take advantage of our bodies in the wrong way, forcing them to live the lifestyle, is actually the worst thing for the body. We were never designed to have so much sugar in our blood And so much fat in our blood. And you know what? Interesting. Together, they were never supposed to be at the same time. We're supposed to be able to handle glucose. And we're supposed to be able to to handle fat. You know what happens with type 2 diabetes patients? As the years go by, it turns out that fat and sugar are high in the blood. Mm -hmm. Then there's a problem. Because those conditions are actually toxic for the pancreas. And down the road, if this is a poorly controlled patient who doesn't take care of themselves good enough, we might discuss what that is, then even the pancreas suffers, and then they end up also taking insulin. Okay. So those diseases kind of converge at some point.
0: Sure. And I think you know, for me, this is this is a very important topic because, I, I as I mentioned to you earlier on, my own mother passed away in 2013. She was overweight. She was diabetic. Oh, she had recent. high blood pressure. Yeah, and um, she was on the she was on the best medication, but uh, her eating plan she was on a low GI, low fat eating plan. And I've since learned, just like in the last year or so, that the 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 low carb, high, um, healthier fat, higher fat eating plan. The saturated, uh, having more saturated fats is actually much, much healthier for us than all these other things that we've been told because the low fat foods have got high amounts of oh, yeah. sugar, True. Of, of hidden sugars. So it's, yeah, it's something that's very really close to my heart. So I don't know if you've actually heard of the low carb, higher fat eating plan at all. In, have um, you come across some people call it banting? Some people call it the yeah. paleo diet. Have you heard of it?
1: Oh, definitely. I hear it uh, as part of the profession and as part of living this life with so much access to so much information, mm. which has to be kind of filtered. Because if you go up in the internet, you'll, you know, you want of the secret, you'll find whatever you're looking for.
0: <laughs> Isn't that
1: true? You'll find what you're looking for. The truth is more complicated. So let me give you some of the basics. Okay. Our body is able to make sugar, period. You don't need it from anywhere, sugar.
0: So we like do glucose. not need sugar
1: From, the, from the outside, now, because we can make it. Who makes it? The liver. And when you go to bed at night, uh, your liver makes glucose for your body so that the brain doesn't panic again. Every time you don't eat, in between meals, you want to hear the fantastic thing is we're designed not to eat for easily two or three months fasting now we're not going to be very excited and happy about it (laughs) no
0: not at all but
1: right i mean we are going to be groggy but the actual biochemistry of the body is perfect for that it's actually healthier it's part of what we're designed to do because humankind was had to go through evolution passing stretches of weeks without food without food so what happens then what you do when you go for a long trip and there's no food you panic and you take in uh you, you start packing food That's what we're doing now physically. What do you do? You go for the carbs, the pasta, the bread, where there's more sugar because um, you know that that's going to be degraded slowly and you cover it for a very long time. The body doesn't need that. It doesn't need it. And by the way, when you mentioned the pills that the patients take, the mother, Mm -hmm. there's really only one major pill that, that is distributed for type 2 diabetics. And that works on one thing, in the disease and not the entire disease. Remember I told you the liver generates sugar when you need it? So let's look at the blood for a second, inside. And you look closer and you see sugar there. Where did it come from? Some of it you ate from the outside, like what I'm drinking, and some of of the glucose is what your liver made. The drug that people with type 2 diabetic people take is only intended to block the liver from making glucose.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, But then all the rest is what you eat. So basically, the drugs are just partially dealing with the disease, the
0: problem. and
1: one of the problems that we have is the the compliance is over enthusiastic, and patients take the pills thinking that now they can indulge in food.
0: And that is so true, Ellie. I mean, um, you know, when I, look at, when, I look, when I look at even the patients that I used to deal with a lot, especially when I was working in the government sector, it is so difficult to tell someone not to eat a certain thing. And right. the diabetic patients were notorious. I mean, my mom, any excuse to eat custard and jelly, like just a small thing like us visiting her on a Sunday, she would binge on whatever was there. Um, and she'd say, no, it's because my grandchildren are here. Any excuse to, to, to you know, to, to I totally to
1: understand. First of all, her and the, and the yeah, the phenomenon you know part of that is part of that is attributed to the way that our bodies now have been wired uh, to, in the wrong way to live,
0: yeah
1: We have many circuits in the brain, all kinds of electrical circuits. i 'll give you an example, for example if you for example, if you 're really thirsty
0: yes
1: really thirsty, you look for fluids, right? Mm. It turns out that by the time the humankind became so modern these um, electrical circles are slightly mixed and you can confuse that with hunger. Yeah. And emotional stress is accidentally translated to hunger. So Emotional many, eating. Exactly. So even though you justify it, and you may even be correct, it's not the calories that you need, but the circle in the brain makes you think so. So all you have to do, well, it's not that simple, but if you convince yourself that the your body is misinterpreting... Whatever it is that you need, it isn't food. It's probably something else, and you falsely uh, fix it with food. It's very temporary. It's really temporary. In fact, it's actually at some point uh, it dives to the wrong end, and you become depressed because you ate. So, the basic the basics are kids. Their nutrition usually is exactly what they want. They're still they're still wired properly and also trusted. So, if a kid wants. Uh, something at the moment it's probably he's probably right he's probably right we're the adults that got it all wrong mm. so when you crave something think again when you see something in a movie and you think it's tasty and and you're depressed think about it again because you can you probably mixing these cycles these circles together
0: well, you know what, Eli, just to, to, just to back up what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, so I started the, the banting eating plan. And one of the things that I've learned to do is to only eat when I'm hungry. So, there are days when I actually only eat once a day.
1: Isn't that amazing?
0: You know, and I never dreamt that in my 39 years, I would actually reach a stage where I would only eat once a day. I mean, I'm overweight. I, I come from an overweight family. I'm drinking sparkling water. This is something that never happened. It's sparkling <laughs> water. Water wasn't part of my eating plan, and certainly not sparkling water. Right. But I've learned that the sparkle helps. Helps me calm down Because Mm. I loved fizzy drinks I I lived a lot on fizzy drinks But at least this is like a good substitute for it But eating when I'm hungry Only when I'm hungry Has been a
1: great, great lesson for me And And isn't it surprising that it's not every half hour? It's no it And
0: that's the thing. And sometimes when I go, like today, for example, I go to bed and I've just had a cup of tea and I haven't had any supper. I keep on thinking to myself, why would I eat all these other times? Why was I so clued on breakfast and then snack and then lunch and then snack and then supper and then snack? I was eating six times a day
1: before. Can, can we go back to the nerves in the brain? You know how you stop one of these cycles? You have to actually stimulate it. That's weird. But if you stimulate it, it stops. Um, going in these endless circles, okay, and you stimulate it. So fuzzy water is a stimulus, okay.
0: and you kind of satisfy
1: that that, that
0: thing that needs yeah, it. Yeah, you know, Okay, so that's a, okay. Spi- that's great. That's isn't it nice? Hear.
1: Spicy food. They say that if you eat very spicy food, you actually satisfy more nerves than otherwise. Oh, I
0: see. If you eat
1: while watching TV, you might accidentally miss on it, and after the episode is ended, you do, you still you can't remember if you ate.
0: Yeah, and you've just finished a whole bowl of chips or, or, you know. Who left
1: that bowl here? (laughs) So, yeah, it's all about these these brain interpreting wrong what we need. And you can easily stimulate them. I'm talking like it's easy. It's not easy.
0: No, it's not easy. But
1: you have to admit that the body knows better than your mind.
0: No, And that's true. And And I think for me it's always such a surprise as I say that I'm, I'm, I've got I've so much more energy for one. I think certainly after cutting sugar out of my, for, out of my right. eating plan, I have much more energy reserves than I used to have before. And I'm losing weight. I mean, look, my, my weight loss has been slow because I'm not exercising. I mean, I don't, I don't feel the need to exercise as yet. And I'm also still quite heavy, but, um, it's happening. It's gradual and I'm losing weight slowly but surely. And, right. you know, and I, and I suppose I wish my mom, you know, I wish I'd known all of this before my mom complicated and, 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 and died. But hey. It, you know, at least I can help other people from, from falling into the same situation. Always.
1: No, you should know this. Nobody dies in vain.
0: Mm. Right? That's
1: true. And she gave us something now, the reason to discuss this. So let me put something in this discussion maybe yeah. that's interesting for you. Because when you eat when you're hungry, you're basically back to what your body needs. You, you're trusting it again. And if you know what the body needs, it's very, very, very mild exercise. It's not even exercise. Walking. Can you imagine now, If back to humankind, we walked all over the place. You walk and you stop and you rest and you walk again. If you find a way to introduce walking, I did it myself, I tried it, and believe me, I was heavier and I lost some. Just walking. I just okay. parked far from my job. I just I have a dog, so that's fantastic because you walk the dog all the time. Um, I get, uh, I listen to podcasts. All the time. Mm-hmm. So if this podcast is what one hour long, yeah, it's perfect. You leave your house, you have a timer, sixty uh, minutes so of listening. When, it's,
0: when the podcast is finished, uh, you should be. Back you in know home. that
1: you're back home, and you you become smarter because you walk. And this walking, when you walk, you know you don't really think you're exercising. Your mind is actually free for more things. So you can learn. You can speak, you can read things when you're walking if it's, a, if it's a paved area and you don't fall into a hole Yeah. <laughs> but definitely walk and not only walking, there's something in the developed countries that is really bad if you walk too flat like it's a paved area, that's not what we're intended to do you have to walk oh, where I it's see. a bit gravel and you have to kind of struggle with, with balancing when you walk, some gravel, some small hills, some uneven path, Okay. walking that if you add that to your amazing back to instincts, food eating, you'll you'll see amazing results, and you don't feel like you are exercised.
0: Mm. I think that's and what I didn't like. I had a personal trainer. I used to go to gym, and I just didn't like the. I just didn't like the feeling of. I'm now he's going to make me do ten of those and ten of that. It's just yeah. quite hard for me. I mean, it's because you? I'm like so a, heavy.
1: But you're not a machine. You're not yeah. a robot. Here, I'll give you something really great for you to hear, and you can use that always. And you're going to be so proud that you know this. They did a study. They took healthy individuals and they divided them into two. And they wanted to see how diabetes behaves if you exercise. Mm-hmm. They weren't sure if it's calories or what kind of exercise you do. So the two groups were divided. Half of them did spinning. You know what that is? Oh, yes.
0: Oh, spinning crazy. looks hectic. It looks crazy. Spinning, but
1: they did the real, like, like very the intense proper, for yeah. weeks. Um, you know, in the dark and they shout at you and they throw water balls and you really have to <laughs> spin fast. They did that for weeks. That's one group. The other group did the very same amount of calories calculated by walking. Okay. The study was intended to show that you can actually slowly take care of diabetes if you do exercise. It was the original plan to to vote for the cyclists, for the ones who are doing the spinning. You know what happened? They developed type 2 diabetes. Wow. Starting healthy, they developed type 2 diabetes. And there's a lot of science behind that because what happens is you stress your body And when you do it too much intensely, there you go, you don't have to do it intensely. If you actually push the body to the stressful corner, and even physical stress, that stress actually translates into inflammation. That inflammation translates into a point in the body that it has to decide how to function. And part of that is stressful rise in glucose. We do that intentionally, yeah. So let's say this. Let's say I... Uh, surprise you now. When you become scared and you jump. Yeah. You know what happens in the body? Glucose will rise intentionally so that the brain will have enough glucose to process
0: what's things. happening. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: That's, that's the fight for flight. That's what we do when we're surprised. Um, when I speak to audiences, I give an example of being bitten by a lion uh, here in South Africa. I don't want to even mention it.
0: <laughs> I know. But yeah,
1: it's horrible. But basically, go back to what we used to do when you were, uh, Suddenly stricken by something that's dangerous and, and risky, you needed glucose sugar to go up so that the brain can process and run to the proper location and hide and can, uh, design as an escape route. We took that reflex. We took that very hardwired reflex, which is uh, intended to cause your pancreas not to make insulin and it's intended to make your body ignore insulin to, for glucose to rise. To, yeah. Yeah, we, we're, we're signaling the rise of glucose. We took it and it's, we stretched it, and we stretched it, and we live that way chronically. Okay. When you live that way, your body doesn't know how to deal with it, mm-hmm. and it keeps the high glucose aspect there, but it doesn't give you any of the benefits of running away f- and, and finding a way to fix the mm-hmm. situation. Living under chronic inflammation for the past few years, has been proven to be part of many diseases. Mm. Not only type 2 diabetes as well, it also includes um, some susceptibility to cancer, God forbid, um, uh, other inflammation-related um, events like yeah. arthritis, like vasculitis. Things like that happen to be more prevalent in the developed countries that live under stress. Mm. Um, in, interestingly enough, even type 1 diabetes, which yeah. if you try to uh, define the reason for type 1, you're still part of a very group of researchers who have no idea how it started. Nobody does. But it is more prevalent in the developed countries.
0: Okay. Type 1, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, Finland, North America, uh, Europe, they have more type 1 diabetes, which is the immune system attacking yourself. Where you where you barely find tapwanda, but this is South America, Africa, low uh, Peru, low socioeconomic um, country. Co- yeah, populations where the immune system doesn't attack them. The immune system has uh, matured in the proper way. Every time you engage with anything immunological, like it could be an infection, it could be a pimple, it could mm. be a dirty food or something, your immune system upgrades a bit. So it's, you're born with an immune system 1.0. Mm. Every time that you sick, it upgrades. Isn't that nice? Yeah. 2.0. Sometimes it's a better version, but it actually upgrades. If you live in a hyper-hygienic environment, that's one of the theories. Like the developed countries, these these babies and, and children and adolescent, they haven't touched dirt in years. And the immune system is still 1.0. I get you. And then the first time it meets something, it actually overreacts. Suddenly you see... Allergic kids, they're allergic to everything.
0: Yeah.
1: Asthma. You don't see asthma in Peru. You see it where people are overprotective and overhygienic and the immune system wakes up at age 18. And suddenly you're reacting to everything. And it's overreacting. So actually there's a a very nice study that we did in Africa. That's a nice surprise. It's my first day in South Africa, but it is... um, the second time that we work with Africa, we actually had a small Ebola study yeah. published. And a group of researchers from my university in Israel, BGU, flew to Uganda yes. several times. And they collected blood samples from people who survived Ebola. So they were infected, but survived. They survived. Obviously. So there was an outbreak in 2002, another one subsequently, and the survivors were followed in that way. Um, this is a very creative moment in, in science because how could you possibly study uh, culture and immunological aspects of blood of a patient who is somewhere in a, in a secluded area, in a village, in uh, way out there? Mm. It's very difficult. And they reach them with jeeps. So that's where the creative part comes in. And I have a feeling that by the end of this podcast, you're going to do research.
0: <laughs> I hope so, friend. really.
1: <laughs> you look at your face, you're lighting up. What we did was like this. They have no instruments, at yeah. uh, those areas, but they're collecting fresh blood. And you want to know what the immune system is doing. So in Israel, we prepackaged empty uh, experimental tubes and we loaded them with, with uh, powdered segments of Ebola virus and yes. all kinds of stimulants. And they were empty and ready, shipped them. And the group drove all the way to Uganda and to uh, one of the centers was, for example, in Gulu
0: yes. and
1: others um, And they drew the blood and immediately into these tubes. So every patient was actually uh, uh, giving some blood so that it will be uh, distributed between several tubes. And allowed to respond to whatever was in the tubes for 24 hours. The next day they froze them, shipped them to Israel, Mm -hmm. and we studied them. And we've published this incredible insight to do with the local populations and how they deal with viruses and Ebola. The first thing we discovered, and it's very interesting, is that we cannot use our local technicians' blood for control. Okay. Apparently, you cannot compare this Hungarian-Romanian 55-year-old woman... To
0: someone from... From a
1: tribe. Yeah, you can't compare them. And the reason was that all the local uh, native individuals, they had such a higher level of... Pre-recognition of so many viruses, they were always exposed. They were always in some Makes virus sense. or another. Yeah, it doesn't it. Meanwhile, the the, the other population of people that that are much less exposed during their life, the, uh, it's like the first time that they see some of these viruses. And inside the tubes, we started to see this um, kind of unfolding before our eyes. What did we find? We saw that people who survived Ebola had an immune system that recognizes Ebola, even 10 years later. But if I have like one second to give you a little bit background about the immune system, we have B cells to make antibodies and T cells to uh, kill cells and work independently. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of two major arms. It's kind of like having two ways to kill something. Mm -hmm. It turns out that there's people who are B cell types and there's people who are T cell types. Okay, You cannot tell them apart scientifically if you do research you discover them and some people are both and some people are actually unfortunately neither and they're more susceptible to infections the outcome was kind of surprising if you have two arms of the immune system over responding to ebola too much you actually become one of the victims the immune system overwhelms the body with response and it becomes um, unable to survive such an incredible response it's a very powerful Immune system.
0: I can imagine. We, we need
1: it and it works. Yeah. But when it's powerful and it's on top of us...
0: And it's too much,
1: exactly. then it's detrimental. That's dangerous. Now, obviously, if, on the other side of the spectrum, if you don't have an immune system, anything can come in and you'll be infected. Mm. Those survivors had one of those two branches, superior to the other. So they were either making really good T-cell responses, but very low antibodies, or the reverse. Having one of these, they survived. So they can respond, they do respond, but they don't become the platform that suffers from this response, and they manage somehow. And that's a very nice finding to have because it actually may be relevant for many other diseases.
0: And for the future, that's amazing. That's, Isn't it amazing? That is amazing, Eli. It might
1: fit more with viruses that are lethal, but yeah. that are very rapidly lethal, so yeah. you have this distinction. When HIV broke out, that was the case. Mm. You have it, it's a death sentence. But then you found out that there were few people that were so-called... Air parenthesis immune to HIV. Mm. And then you realize that it exists, that you don't necessarily have to over respond. Mm. So it, it's out there. It's a nice concept. Yeah. And yeah, we're that's really proud of this finding.
0: Yeah, that's very really interesting. And the, and so back to type 1 um, diabetes, Ellie, yes. and the work that you've done around. Wh- which is an
1: over response of, of yeah, the immune system. Of the immune
0: system. The, um, the transplants. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So. Where did, how did you start figuring out all of that? That if you can transplant these islet cells, this could happen and this could right. happen. Yeah, that's, oh, that's fascinating.
1: It is, and it's still growing, it's still a very attractive area. It goes into the basics of medicine. Yeah. You define diseases, some of them have progression uh, styles, some of them progress to the worst, some to the better, some of them are short. But there is such a thing as end stage disease, mm. unfortunately. End stage disease means the disease reached its last stage and it doesn't have any new direction to go to. It can't, it's just stuck. It could be heart failure, it could be kidney failure. Mm. For those conditions, in end stage conditions, we transplant. What? Yes. I mean, what could you possibly yeah, otherwise if, do? If
0: there's a donor?
1: Replace it. Yeah, yeah. You replace the organ. It's literally life saving and it's literally the cure for that condition because you finally have a proper. Properly function organ.
0: Yeah, a new one.
1: Exactly. Well, you can imagine that there's never enough organs to transplant, but that's another thing. Meanwhile, if you can transplant successfully, then what's the problem? Let's fix everyone. The problem is that you transplant from one person to another, and the immune system is designed to respond to anything foreign, Mm,
0: even if it's another human. Yeah, and flesh it out do whatever.
1: Oh, yeah. We have no idea why that happened. By the way, nobody in evolution ever transplanted anything we don 't know why this uh, yeah. exists, but the immune system does have this uh, default of being very powerful against anything that's not th- yeah that it of... didn't bo- that wasn 't born with yeah so you transplant physically it 's feasible technically it 's very it 's rather easy. The techniques have advanced amazingly in many organ transplants, and eyelids for the pancreas are one of these um, in two thousand, a group in Canada perfected the way that we clean out of the pancreas. Small pieces, which are actually precisely the ones who will make insulin.
0: Okay.
1: Cleaning them out, you know what's left? It turns out that the pancreas is 99% irrelevant for diabetes, and 1% of the mass is the eyelids. They actually fill up a spoon. Really? And Yeah, exactly. Isn't that funny? Amazing. uh... When you graft those, the mass is so small that you don't need so much immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. Because obviously you could always transplant a pancreas, but it's a huge organ, and it elicits a huge response. Yeah. If you go back to literature, you'll see many times kidney pancreas transplant, lung pancreas. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Heart pancreas. You know Mm. why? Because if you're eligible for one of these big organs, you're going to be under immunosuppression anyway. If you you need a heart transplant, you're going to be under immunosuppression. Definitely. And then they put in the pancreas as well because it was never worth it alone. It's never worth introducing this transplant and now adding immunosuppression to your life if you could try to handle it with insulin injections. But they solved it by taking out the spoonful of cells, and then they're not so provocative. But it turns out everybody was very ecstatic about this, 2000, 2001. The years go by, and the, patient who, the patients who enjoyed these islets discovered that they slowly, the islets start to decay. They start to lose uh, their function, and after five years, most of them went back to injecting insulin. Mm. So it's not perfect. But the motivation was still there. Mm -hmm. Now we're, what is it, 2015? Yeah. And there's a new, there's new hope, there's new directions. One of them is really my research, is what I do. And it has to do with the fact that our body, apparently, always had some solutions for when we're sick. It did. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be here, isn't that true?
0: Yeah.
1: We did. But those are the conditions that we evolved in. It's not those new things that we introduced now. Uh, the body never the evolution never had mcdonald's anywhere
0: That's true. <laughs> junk I food processed so. foods high sugar yeah
1: lifestyle of having to eat at different time points mm. and stress and all that so so the body is designed differently and the body is designed to identify a point of inflammation and and danger and it has this um, program that it opens at that point which is intended to protect the rest of the body while this is happening so let's go back to being bitten by a big animal. A lion, yeah. uh, Camel in Israel.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay, camel.
1: If you're bitten, obviously, I mean, that's, it's de facto. That's it. You're bitten, you're infected. Yeah. But from that point, if you let the body do what it likes to do, it will switch on this special program. I call it like in computer safe mode where the immune system is functioning. You need it. But it, it um, at, at the very best now of identifying what's yourself and what's not, it's hyper-identifying that. So the immune system only goes to where the infection is, so pairing th- the rest of the body, yeah. Mm. Because that's a very dangerous point of decision. If you have, let's say you're infected now and there's, an, uh, uh, in your knee, okay, you just got an accident. Why would you want your T cells now to be reactive to accidentally parts of your knee? That's a risk. And they develop memory. I mean, we like them to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: If it's against yourself, that's a bad thing. So the body actually sets itself in this mode where yourself is, uh, try is trying to isolate it from that event. It does it the way it does everything with molecules. And it does release, actually, into the blood, several types of molecules that mm-hmm. circulate when you're sick. So if anyone, you don't have to be, you don't have to go to the camel and lion story anymore. You could have a flu, simple flu, influenza. You're sick, you feel horrible, right? Definitely. You intended to do that. You know why? When you're sick, it's called the illness syndrome. You become asocial, you lose the appetite. Asocial. You're lying down,
0: drinking yeah. lots of water.
1: You even develop fever so yeah. that, are you ready for this? You don't have to go out to the sun to warm up. All these things made you susceptible when you're bitten and sick. So you don't uh, socialize, you can stay under the rock and you can hide and you, Until
0: you're you warm your own body. Yeah.
1: You lose the appetite, you don't have to look for food because if you were a bitten animal, you'd be immediately eaten yeah
0: yeah because you're, you're vulnerable
1: and those molecules circulate the blood they rise in the levels we actually record them during that uh, when people are sick for a week or two these molecules dominate the blood and they protect the tissues from further infection and they uh, facilitate and enhance wound healing mm-hmm. they make it faster because you want to close down any wound as fast as possible yeah especially when you're wounded and susceptible these molecules um, are being discovered as we speak. Many of them, some of them have been present for a long time. One of them, luckily for us, is actually well studied, but nobody knew that it had to do with the story. That particular molecule it has a long name. What's that's, the um, name? The smaller <laughs> the molecule, the longer the name. That's, <laughs> that's I, that's I don't true, know why. Man, right? It's horrible. And the people who give the names are, are sadistic. <laughs> there's no way, it doesn't sound like, okay, the full name. Is alpha-1 antitrypsin. Mm. Nickname it alpha-1. Just promise me that no, not every alpha-1 now is that. <laughs> but for the sake of the podcast, it's alpha-1.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: We have it all the time, apparently. We just have a little bit of alpha-1 in the blood. Um, even our uh, technician has some alpha-1 now. Everybody has it. It's normal. But when you're sick, the levels will rise 46 times higher okay. for a week or two. How do we know this? Because apparently there's a rare condition... Um, one in 10,000 individuals maybe, they have a genetic deficiency in alpha-1. They have a mutated form that doesn't become released to the blood. Mm-hmm. So they have very little of it. Uh, it's, it's a rare population um, that... Uh, it's interesting. It originated probably from northern Europe. We blame the Vikings. Who knows? But they exist. For these individuals, for 30 years, we've been extracting alpha-1 from the blood to give them. So, I mean, it's the easiest... Um, formula you can think of. Somebody doesn't have a protein, so you just so you get just... the protein and give them.
0: And yeah, yeah, exactly. you place it.
1: So we have 30 years of records of people getting once a week for life alpha 1 in an infusion drip because they don't have enough of it. Those levels actually are very high because we try to replicate what the body would make and, and they decline after you infuse, so you basically give them quite a bit. And we know for um, at least 13 years of, of very intense follow-up The surprising thing is that these patients have even less infections than the normal population and less cancer.
0: That is interesting.
1: It's great. And it's been in the literature. It's been out there. I mean, the sporadic papers uh, describing that it's higher when you're sick and sporadic papers showing that when you give it more, there's less disease. It's kind of hinting there. But science was very enthusiastic about mechanisms of many things and, and it took time. Mm. to finally know what T cells do, B cells do, and all that. Now, how do they all connect? We have to start from ground zero again, from the beginning. And this molecule apparently has been out there forever, and it knows exactly how to work, how to orchestrate these cells. Mm -hmm. And it goes like this. The more primitive cells that we have in the immune system, the more basic macrophages, neutrophils, the one who go to kill bacteria, they have a very tight relationship with this molecule. They can still work, but they won't create any damage around them. So they will I be super see. killers of bacteria, but they won't cause too much damage. Mm. Meanwhile, the sophisticated immune system, T cells and B cells, that came very late in evolution, we were never that big, we never needed such a sophisticated system, they came at some point in evolution, and humankind has that complex of an immune system. The added layer of T cells and B cells were never actually, um, they never evolved with Alpha 1. And it turns out that Alpha 1 does not affect. T-cells. Wow. It doesn't. The, directly, we tried this. We try You t- take T-cells to the culture. You give them stimulus and, and and try to see them. They do the very same thing with and without alpha-1. It allows them to work. And here you have part of the, the best formula you can imagine because it allows the immune system to do things. It never wiped it out. It never suppressed anything. It diverted it. Mm. And finally, you have, under conditions with more alpha-1, an immune system that can work, but it's diverted towards pathogenic threats, away so it's, from it's actually your own like tissue. zones
0: in a specific…
1: Yeah. I, I imagine it almost like um, like the water is, is closing in on this event, mm. so it's kind of isolated. They can still do what they want to do there. Yeah. But why should an innocent cell, by bystanding cell, why should it suffer? For, for, what, for this event. Exactly. And it's worth protecting.
0: Wow, that's profound, Eddie. But we'll be it's back great. after this.
1: This is Cliffcentral.com.
0: Well, we're back with um, um Professor Ellie Lewis and we're discussing type one diabetes, we're discussing type two diabetes, we're discussing research. He's a very interesting um um person. I mean, he's had a lot of
1: experience with research.
0: So just we spoke a bit about um the patenting of certain ideas. I mean, why does that need to happen?
1: Oh, that's a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned it, because there's some uh different there's, there's some skepticism sometimes. Yeah. People think that the pharma industry is is manipulating findings towards making more money. Mm-hmm. I've had those days sometimes when it's hard that you actually think maybe, maybe they don't want to find a cure for diabetes. Mm. Look at all the industry around oh,
0: I've had those feelings as well about HIV right? as well. Sometimes it crosses Maybe mind. somebody's
1: profiting. It, it's out there. But I could tell you this. The, the bigger picture is like this. In universities, that's where ideas spark. A university creates knowledge and and teaches it, mm. but it creates knowledge. That's where it's going to happen. That's Those are the ideas. Industry, on the other hand, has the money and the capacity to push them forward. The university doesn't have that, that ability to push something to, to be marketed and used. It's overwhelming for an academic nonprofit institute. Mm. So then there's an interface. Within that interface, it's almost like two different languages. I mean, you can imagine... Science and industry, how can you connect them? Yeah. Well, it translates in a way, but what the universities have at least is the idea that they can protect their intellect. Yes. Which is the phrase intellectual property.
0: Mm, IP, yeah.
1: So if you imagine it's, it's a non-profit uh, entity, a university, what can you possibly hold on to? Knowledge. So the patent, and I think it's important, there's a, there's a note side note about patenting which is uh, the part that I don't like and that patents today basically are designed to be exclusional meaning whatever you patent nobody else can do okay which is good if you're a very good person trying to do that thing but what if you patent something and then ignore it
0: and you just leave it lying there so nobody could used... do it yeah nobody oh, can I do that see.
1: that's a dangerous area that's a dangerous point so there's for example there's big companies that might patent something so that other companies can't do it but they don't advance. So it's not so much in the farm industry and health. You see that more in technology. But it's out there. That, that tool for patenting, which was supposed to help the inventor.
0: Can be a hindrance as can, well.
1: Can be abused. There is a very nice effort. I forget how it's uh, called. But a very nice effort trying to conglomerate hundreds of researchers and universities to make patents so that they're um, shareable. So that mm. nobody actually has leverage over the other, but still protected, but still usable. And and it's it, there's many efforts to, to fix these little tiny gaps in in perfection, the perfection of medicine.
0: Because at the end of so, the day, the real reason why we're doing all of this is to help people. We want people oh, to live you know. better lives. You know what? That's really what it's what it's about.
1: There's, we started with one kid. That's it's real. We started with one kid before the clinical trials. Before those, alpha one was all, already available, and yeah. there was one kid diagnosed with type one diabetes. His father found our research, this is more than eight years ago, on the Internet. He's a physician himself, and he insisted that he doesn't want his kid to go to the, the, the diabetic life. He wants to fix it. He looked at the clinical trials available, and they were very desperate and drastic. People were trying to wipe out the immune system, and these are kids. So that kid and that father contacted many groups, and some of them are ours, and then they became convinced that at least it's safe. And it's the first kid, more than eight years, nine years now, in San Diego, in the States, one kid, we started to infuse drip, slow drip infusion of alpha-1. One week, and then another week, and then another week, and this is soon after diagnosis, so it's a very good window. After seven weeks, we had to. We, I was in Israel already, and everybody was communicating, what do we do next? Nobody ever did this. Do we go to a number eight injection? What do, do we, we stop? do? Yeah. yeah, do we go forever? We have no idea. And all these emails, including fellows, colleagues from other universities, uh, this is a very responsible moment. My most proud moment in my life, and I can say it on this fabulous podcast, is that the Harvard guy, and I can say this, quoting him uh, loosely, said, if this were my kid, I would do it. When you hear that, you know that you're on to... You, you're yeah, it's actually something, yeah. Yeah, you found something to break a barrier, which is more than just medicinal. It's also mm-hmm. the compliance. The patient thinks about safety also. So this kid, we went through the eighth infusion, and then we decided to wait and see what happens. Because And was he in
0: hospital the whole time, or no. was he an
1: outpatient? Once a week, outpatient. Okay. Once a week, the kid chose weekends. So there's, and it's a slow drip, and he was playing video games. During the the, like a slow drip, it takes a half an hour, one hour. And you know what? It's it's a very simple, it's a very nice thing that happens in type 1 diabetes. I see this all the time. The diagnosed kid says, you'll hear this hundreds of times in examples. The kid will say, mother and father, I'll be okay. And the parents are besides themselves losing it, quitting their jobs. It's very Mm -hmm. drastic. All these kids, they're so brave. They're so collected.
0: And full of hope as well, yeah.
1: And, and very good. I mean, they become, and I'm not exaggerating, they become the most professionals, the most um, responsible individuals, dancers, uh, sport individuals, athletics, all that. You know why? Because they're so aware this, of this responsibility. Yeah. They inject themselves with insulin when they need. What kind of kid would actually be able to even do that?
0: Exactly.
1: My, one of my best friends when I was a kid, maybe that's the background, had diabetes, and I thought he was a hero because he could inject his own shoulder. Yeah. I thought I literally I had dreams of him with cloak and uh, like a Superman. And they, they actually take uh, charge of their life. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, and, and they understand that this is a matter of life and death. They need to, yes. to, you know, to make sure that they, they're keeping everything under check. True. And this little boy, so in terms of cost, Ellie, um, how much is that, the Alpha 1 injection drip? How much is but, it?
1: That, that It's not that, well, I don't know exactly how much it is. Yeah, it's a farmer, try- the, the companies that make it. The dose um, at present, according to the clinical trials that are running, uh, the dose would fit something that's not extreme. Um, for example, we had to ship Alpha 1 to Australia for a kid that wanted to try, that, that was on board with this trial, and to ship the amount that was required for a kid who's 12 years old um, for that line of infusions, yeah. it, I think it was roughly six thousand euros.
0: Okay, and,
1: and that and he has the material, so it's not it's not something you you lose your life about. Okay. It's not that it's not a matter of money. There is a point though. There's many physicians that resist this. There's something called off-label. Uh, if I'm, you might be aware of it, but for the listeners, off-label means literally that a condition is not written on written on the bottle that contains the drug. Okay. So Alpha One is intended for the genetic deficiency. That's on the label.
0: Yes.
1: We think it's also good for diabetes. That's not on the label. Mm. But it's the right, the, the human ethical right for every doctor to give a drug if he thinks it works. Yeah, to give it, it could a shrug. help. Yeah. Completely. No matter what religion you choose, you'd rather give something and help than watch somebody decline. And so physicians are allowed to, entitled, to get the permission from their head pharmacist and head of institute, whatever that is, to prescribe alpha-1. It's okay. already a drug. I mean, it's already out there. Yeah. Prescribe it, even though it's not for the intended label well,
0: condition. Well, give it a try. And exactly.
1: Something. So that's off-label. And physicians have been very hesitant about it. They like to be, you know, it safe. Yeah. They, they want to wait for two more two more years to see what happens. So some of these families are that serious, so desperate, that they will actually go Straightforward. and
0: Find you guys and ask you guys to, yeah. to and assist. And it's doable.
1: There, there's two, uh, roughly two dozen families around the world, and I'm talking about from Australia to North America, in, in Europe, that find their physician that can do it. And you know what? There's absolutely... Uh, this is difficult for me to say to a clinician. Yeah. There's no side effects because it's something that your body makes anyway, and especially when you're sick. We seem to find the thing which is to take it from somebody and give it to someone when he needs it more in a safe manner. This there's no odd. side effects. It is exciting, and it's the first time that we actually listen closely to what the body would have done. Mm. There's so many reasons why the body fails to do this mm-hmm. in these days. I, I can't even count them. It's so many reasons why you would fail to do that. Um, too many over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs. I mean, what, what? There's some families that the moment that the baby, baby is sick and cries, we immediately give anything to block inflammation and fever and that, right? I don't yeah. judge anyone, but at that moment, the body should have had a signal to open up the program yeah. for protecting the body. You might actually not give it that chance even.
0: Mm. So it's,
1: it's still in in the beginning of understanding it, but it does happen. We do believe that the body has more answers than we every thought
0: mm-hmm. and that, this is profound Eddie and you, the university that you come from um, um, I know that it's, it's like I've, I've looked it up it's an amazing university and they seem to have a very strong culture of encouraging research and, and that, that's amazing I think that's awesome yeah you know
1: it, it's a very you're, it's a rather young university mm. um 45, and it's like 50 something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's that. It's not yeah, that. The
0: ben, yeah, Ben Gurion University.
1: Ben Gurion University. After the, it's named after the, the first uh, prime minister of Israel, mm-hmm. and it's a younger university. It's located way down in the south, in the periphery of the country. It was established for the sake of the of the uh, far away villages and and small populations, because it's obviously easy to have all the doctors do there. Um, internship in big centers with big... What about the others? What about the the small um, establishments and and they don't
0: have access to... to yeah, to, to and them.
1: the doctors don't have the motivation to actually establish a career there. The same so, thing
0: in South Africa. I mean, that's why I'm I think sure. after graduating, you have to serve internship and community service. Community service means they place you in a far-off place where you I'm wouldn't savvy. go if you had a choice, you know, because those people yeah. also need medical um, help.
1: Precisely. I, you know what? I find many parallel lines connecting South Africa and Israel in that respect, mm. because we, I think we both realized... Uh, that we have to take care of the people. Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, nothing's going to advance b- because uh, there's a very nice chair somewhere in some high place. And when you talk about that, you actually have to reach everywhere. So this university is intended for that. It's placed way down in the south. I mean, nobody would drive there just like that. You drive past it sometimes. And part of the programs are that the students go to the community, they actually take care of kids, teach them what they know. Um, I myself, when I was a medical student, I had every year I had a kid, that had to uh, follow after school. And medical students get medical need patients. And regular students, like for other uh, faculties, I can't even... I'm so into research, but there's like engineering faculties.
0: Oh, okay. They
1: go to to families and and take care of the kids that are uh, on different reasons, socioeconomic level, poor families, uh, uh, problems. I had a kid to take care of, which I'm so proud of. He had paralysis from waist down. Yeah. And it took me forever to walk with him a few meters. And in the end of the year, we both did a project and he won. Oh. It's that kind of thing. And yeah. you're just a student. I mean, you basically, if you're a student anywhere else in the world, you'd be thinking of how to survive
0: yeah, the, the semester. Yeah, the exams and the semester. Exactly. Everything exactly. is on
1: that. But now in in BGU, at BGU, you look around and you're part of the city. You and you're part to. of that population.
0: Because you can't ignore, you can't ever ignore what's happening around you. I think as doctors, a lot of us are social workers at heart as well. We don't realize it, you know, because we are affected by what's happening to our patients out there.
1: You know what? You, I don't know how you do this. But as an interviewer, you pick exactly the right things. My my boyfriend, I, I have a boyfriend Yeah. for a very long time, is a social worker. Yeah. And you'd think that at dinner we have nothing to discuss, right? Mm. But no, that's not the case because doctors are as frustrated with what they can provide as social workers. They don't have enough tools. So who will invent those tools? Who will design research and create things, tools to help? It's the researchers. Exactly. So that's where I sit. But I can see that the social worker has, has a limited toolbox for many things. It's that same frustration that drives us. Mm. And by the way, he also has a podcast. Mm. only in Hebrew. Oh. And he interviews uh, social worker uh, personnel and patients and families of patients. Things like that. It's really...
0: Yeah, it is we a, it's share a, it, so much. Yeah, it's true. It is, it's amazing. But yeah, Elie, it's been a fantastic um, um, time chatting to you. Where can we find you? And, I'm, and, and, and if people need to get a hold of you. People that have heard this podcast who may have a child that has type 1 diabetes in their families and they need to find you. Where can they find you? Your email address and where can we find you on Facebook?
1: Mm. Well, there goes my privacy. You know today. <laughs>
0: well, you can give us your work email address. It doesn't have to
1: be. Oh, available. that's really easy. If you yeah. got the university's name, which is BGU, yes, the email is really simple. You can find it on the internet. It's uh, lewis at BGU. Okay. Louis, like the family name.
0: Yeah.
1: At BGU, and then you had have have a dot AC for academia and dot IL for Israel. Okay. But that's all over the internet. You can probably find me photoed in a bathing suit. Somewhere. (laughs) It's that accessible today.
0: Yeah, no, we'll definitely get your details out there. And all the best with the rest of the talks that you'll be giving in South Africa. And I I look forward to keeping up um, to date with with your research and so on. That would be great. No, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. This is Cliffcentral.com